The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining us this morning is Ashley Merriman. Uh, Ashley is a New York Times bestselling author. Her new book is Top Dog, and uh, she co-authored this book with Poe Bronson. This is not the first book they've co-authored together. Um, Ashley and Poe in this book... Uh, really tackle the issue of what's truly in the heart of a champion. And as uh, Ashley said to me before we got on the show, I mean, everybody obviously is thinking champions, Olympians. So we're going to get into that as well. But anyway, welcome to the show, Ashley. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Good morning. Actually, this topic about, you know, what truly is in the heart of a champion is a mother of three boys who are now in their 30s and were very involved in competition and sports. Um, you know, what, 15 years ago, uh, was always kind of at the top of my mind. Uh, you know, I think, and, and, and so your book really does intrigue me. Let's, let's talk about um, the premise of the book and um, really championship, American culture, families. It's kind of all tied together, at least I see it that way as a social worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, the idea... Well, it's interesting, you know, the full title of the book is Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. And when we said that was the subtitle, everyone's like, well, isn't it just the science of winning? We don't want to hear about losing. And what we realized, you know, the science is not about saying, okay, here is the prototype top dog and everybody else is just left out. It's saying what in the science can help you perform your best under pressure, under challenging circumstances? What is it that helps people rise to the occasion and why do they collapse? And what we learned, the reason it's science of winning and losing, is because the goal of a contest is to win. Sure, no big surprise. But the benefit of competition isn't winning. The benefit, excuse me, the benefit is improvement. And that happens whether you win or lose. It happens in the moment, right? I mean, the silver medalist Canadian ice dancers had the highest score in the history of ice dancing mm-hmm. until two minutes later, <laughs> right? But, but they know what they can do now, and that's changed forever. So competition inspires us to work harder and not tuck, take what we did before for granted, when you talk really about the joy the of victory, is. which obviously the joy of victory, you know, whether you're winning the silver medal or the bronze or the gold, but I think the second part of what you're saying is also the character-building agony of defeat. Mm-hmm. And I think character-building gets lost sometimes when we, as let's say as parents, are trying to help our children to win or become successful. Uh, that second part of your premise, the character-building agony of defeat, is kind of missing, I think, today, or in, in schools, in competition with children, perhaps not, you know, not in the Olympics, because obviously these 
whoever, you know, they are successful. They were able to become champions, and they also had to have been defeated at some point. You mean the sort of everybody gets a trophy that's going on in schools? Yes. Uh, which I hate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, Marcia Fulop studies the responses to winning and losing. And by far the most common responses to winning are joy and satisfaction of being able to successfully achieve something. And the most common response to losing, not surprisingly, sadness. But the key is that both of those things are momentary and then people move on. And the rarer response to both winning and losing is the sense of entitlement. Well, I should have won. And what's fascinating is the good winner is the good loser. The good winner who's gracious and doesn't rub your face in it also goes up and congratulates you when you won that day. The bad loser is also the bad winner. The person who says, it's all about me. And, yeah, I'm concerned in programs that give everyone a trophy, even from three-year-old peewee, that it's constantly, you win, you're a winner, you, you, you. And I wonder, well, don't we, I mean, I've talked to a lot of Olympians and coaches, and they hand you the medal, they hand you the flowers, they kiss you on the cheek, but they don't then stop and say, but remember, it's not if you won or lost, it's how you played the game. You only hear that when you lose, right? Yeah, you only hear that when you lose, that's true. Right, and, and so I wonder, when are the little kids hearing that? Because they're never losing. They're always getting trophies. And I think I mean, you pointed out in one of your articles that uh, I think was in the, New- in the New York Times, and I think this right. is an important point, that you know, winning has become also a billions of dollars a year business, the trophy business. And yeah. I, I was like, oh, Ashley, she really, she's hit on it. That's true. So that every middle school and ele- even elementary school and high school, they buy these trophies. They're not special. They're manufactured so that everybody needs to get a trophy, and it really contributes to the... Maybe the winners are the trophy makers, but... <laughs> oh, absolutely. In fact, there's trophy um, industry websites where they, you know, you know, confer and lobbying associations and all of that because it's a $3 billion, with a B, $3 billion a year industry just in the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, I saw one trophy blog saying, you know, our, our, our industry is so seasonal because of sports. So we should really be encouraging parents to buy trophies for kids during the summer when their kids have read books. So they're literally trying to manufacture new opportunities for their market to keep expanding. But which has nothing to do with the kids. Is that the children who children? You don't fool the children, and the children do know. And uh, I, I think you, you had touched on that in the article, but that was my experience with my boys growing up as well. The kids know if you, and feel whether they really deserve the trophy or whether they were giving it out to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I think it, you said this. It's, it's really it's demoralizing if you've really done your best and then kids who didn't do as well as you do get a trophy, so it doesn't encourage you to go on right. or to go ahead. And the kids who get a trophy and don't deserve it, it doesn't put them in good stead either. So... Right. I mean, you know, the important thing is that it has to be a close race. You have to have a chance of succeeding. And if you have a chance of succeeding, not a guaranteed win, remember, we don't have those in real life, but if you have a chance of succeeding, you feel engaged. And that's whether you did well or whether you struggled. The kids who are, you know, basically getting awards for pity because we want to make them feel better, 
they know that they missed the goal. They know that the kids went, oh, I can't believe he did that again. And they're confused and upset by, you know, this pretense that they did really well. And, yeah, the kids who did do well, who worked really hard, they get angry. Why did I, you know, they feel like it was a sucker punch. Why did I work so hard if I got the same recognition everybody else who didn't got? Um, yeah, and I also in line with that are these uh, tie games. Nobody wins, so everybody supposedly go away, goes away from the game feeling good. But it doesn't stand, you know, it's not a good thing because obviously at some point you do get out into the real world and you mm-hmm. have to take the SATs and get into college and those school in what, you know, and if you get a 400, that's not the same as getting a 600 or. Right. So, you know, what, it's not, a, but it's not about making kids feel badly. It's not about making kids into losers. But it's understanding that they need to learn how to be resilient and come back from the loss, come back from the failure. What did they learn from it? And that's where I think the focus is, needs to be shifting more so that, yeah, honey, I know you didn't get a trophy today, but do you like soccer? Do you want to play next week? Okay, let's go. And, and, and moving past it rather than saying winning is everything and losing is catastrophic because it's just not. Well, did you find in your research and in, in, in writing this book that, because you're talking about what's truly in the heart of a champion, mm-hmm. how did, what is truly in the heart of a, ta- a champion? Like very specifically, how, did, how do champions, let's say the Olympics, any one of these contenders or champions, even if they, as you say, even if they don't get a medal at the Olympics, they've gotten that far. How did they get that far? Not by pe- playing in tie games or having somebody give them a trophy when they didn't deserve it, or did they? No, actually, they've done a lot of research with Olympians, Olympic coaches, and they've found that the Olympian and novices, true beginners, don't want an award because they don't want anyone watching them. Because awards are about judgment. You know, you were deemed worthy, here's your award. And kids, especially, who are just learning, they don't want that extra pressure. Research says that beginners... It's too much. They can't concentrate on what they're doing. Instead, they're paying attention to somebody else paying attention to what they're doing. See? And middle, the mid-range people who are still trying to sort of get their establishment, they're the most concerned about awards beating someone else because they're testing their abilities. The truly elite, the guys at the Olympics, the truly elite, for them, their biggest competition is themselves. And they have a perspective of what they can do. They may be happy, even though they got a gold medal, but part of them saying, yeah, but I, I could beat the world record. I beat the world record in practice, and I didn't today. So I'm going to have to do even better tomorrow. So, so are you saying, Ashley, that they, the they, they are competing, they're, they're competing against themselves. It's all about their own personal performance. Like, yes. Okay, so they win a gold medal, I mean, but maybe it they, wasn't even their best because they've done better than that. Right. I mean, it's not that they don't care about beating the other team in the Olympics. Obviously, they want to win. Yeah. But in terms of where their goals are and their achievement, they're looking for that personal best as much as they are for beating the other guy. And this applies, I mean, we've been talking about the Olympics, but it applies in other areas, too, because, you know, I'm looking at your press release, and it says, you know, it's not just Olympians who carry the top dog, your book, Mm -hmm. in their gym bags, but it's also in the briefcases of Wall Street uh, traders. So Mm -hmm. how does it apply there? Because they're cutthroat. (laughs) (laughs) And they do want to win the game. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. But, you know, Wall Street, there's a bunch of different lessons I always think about with Wall Street. Um, One, and this applies 
applies to sports, but it applies to kids in the SAT, and it applies to people trying to get a job, and on Wall Street, is asking the question, are you playing to win, or are you playing not to lose? And, you know, we hear those as sort of sports metaphors, but they're actually descriptions of entirely different strategies of what you're going to do during the day, and even reflect different physiology. So someone who's playing to win is concentrating on their success, what they're going to get from the win, and because of that, they're thinking big picture. Don't tell them what they did wrong. They want to know what they did right because they're going to keep going that way. Someone who's playing not to lose is saying, oh, my gosh, disaster is coming, and I've just got to try and make this as, you know, as least bad as possible. They're not focused on what they're gaining from the win. They're focused on present, preventing the bad thing. So if they want to hear what they did wrong. They want to hear about the details. They don't want to hear, oh, you're wonderful, because they're like, no, 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 it's coming. So it changes their focus and their preparation. But someone who's playing to win, the researchers talk about being in a challenge state. You want to talk about heart of a champion. The challenge state means that every blood vessel in your body dilates, so you get more blood circulation going up. Your heart rate variability, how much that heart's beating, increases the amount of blood coming out of your heart by up to two liters above baseline per minute. You're literally more heart, more blood. Your oxygen, your lungs are expanding, your glucose is going, your adrenaline's rushing, and the opposite happens for the person playing not to lose. Their blood vessels tighten, their blood pressure goes up, their heart rate variability goes down so that they're just racing. You know, when you hear your heart just pounding in your head, boom, 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 you're in a threat state. So it changes how we physically respond in the moment to a challenge just as much as psychologically. Yeah, so there's a whole physical gestalt to the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Mind, yeah. Yeah, and the new research actually is playing with that. They did a recent survey, a Harvard researcher asked people, well, if someone's nervous because they have to give a speech, what would you tell them? 90% of people said, well, I'd tell them to calm down. Mm-hmm. But the experiments in labs say that the better advice is to say, you're not nervous, you're excited. You get a chance to prove what you're doing and this is important to you and you're excited. And being told you're excited actually helps them perform. Being told calm down made it worse because then they started worrying about the fact they weren't calm and that just added to their stress. Yeah, well, it adds to the challenge. Now I have another challenge. Not only I have to give this performance to get the speech, now I have to learn how to calm down, which is the second job to do in the midst of all of this. That's really, that's interesting because you just really just redefine the behavior. Mm -hmm. And redefining the behavior actually changes that underlying physiology and helps you go, helps your heart go, okay, more blood, we're excited because you've got to prepare for a challenge. And, you know, fear is about withdrawing from the challenge, physically becoming smaller. So they have, they've done research where they've had people, you know, punch in the air, hold up their hands like they won a trophy because that's the natural response when you win is to put your hands up. And when they do that, that changes people's testosterone levels, just those changes in posture. and testosterone. Even, even the testosterone levels of women? Yes. <laughs> And that's really important. A lot of people yeah. go, oh, testosterone, well, that must only be about guys and aggression. And women have about one-seventh, depending on the time of year, there's a seasonality to it, actually, but it's around one-seventh 
the baseline testosterone of men. But it's not about baseline. It's about the change in testosterone in the moment. And researchers like Alan Booth have found they can predict who's going to win a chess game. Not wrestling, not football, not boxing. Chess. They can predict who wins a chess match by the testosterone level before the game starts. Researchers in, um, in the Czech Republic couldn't predict who, was, who male or female, was going to get the highest grade on a science college final by testosterone levels before the test began. Because it's that mental preparation. It's a challenge. I'm not guaranteed of success, but I've studied enough, I've concentrated, and I'm excited to be here. And it works. So, what, if you put that in practical terms, could you have a testosterone level device at home to, let's say you're preparing for a test or a speech or a major event to see whether or not your levels were good? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that would be a little bit dodgy because um, if you were trying to do it in the moment, because, you know, it takes about 90 minutes to get the results, and by then your testosterone's changed. And you might be worried, oh my gosh, my testosterone levels aren't high enough, so then but that would then trigger cortisol, not testosterone, the stress hormone. So I think the more important thing is just to, we have a sense, I'm up for it today, I'm engaged today, as opposed to, eh, not so much. And the key in testosterone, you don't need a cheek swab or a spitting and saliva, it's understanding that you care about it and the other people around you care about it. My favorite example of the research in this point, because testosterone is not about aggression. It's about driving you to be motivated for things that are important to you and important to others and social status. So high testosterone firefighters are the guys who run in the building, save the family, and then run back for the goldfish. You know, that sort of daring do that we expect from firefighters. But high testosterone paramedics are conscientious and detail-focused. And that's because when they get to the emergency department, the doctors don't want to hear, well, he wasn't doing so well, on the, so I invented a new procedure on the right over. <laughs> right? <laughs> the doctors don't want to hear that. The doctors want to hear, here's exactly what happened, here's exactly how we treated him, and now you guys can take it from here. So what we valued changes how the testosterone manifests itself. So if you want to fire yourself up on testosterone, you don't need drugs. You need to think about how exciting this is and how important it is to you and what does this mean and not take a win for granted. I think that's the main problem when people go, oh, this one's going to be a cakewalk. So it's the attitude. Isn't that, I mean, they've always said, um, you know, actually, you know, for many years, like those people or who are those individuals who are at the top of their game, for instance, let's say golf um, or even tennis, you know, that you have the top 50 who are playing in all the big tournaments, but mm-hmm. there are other 200, or, there are other 200 below them who play the same game, but they don't, can't, you're talking about focusing in the EMT people, mm-hmm. they don't have the same focus, they don't have, the, they, they, once they get to, when the, I guess the crunch is on or whatever it is, they fall short, and mm-hmm. but their skills are exactly at the same level, let's say, at the top 50. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm thinking of golf. Well, mental preparation is, you know, definitely incredibly important. There's a huge article in today's New York Times about Gracie Gold, the young figure skater, mm-hmm. and she was, and I, I usually don't like to psychoanalyze people, but this was just so on point. She was saying she was afraid of making mistakes. 
She was terrified she wasn't going to make the Olympic team, even though there were you know, newspaper articles saying she's an Olympian. She's like, I'm not on the team yet. Mm-hmm. And because of that, she started making mistakes. She was focused on preventing mistakes, and because all she thought about is, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, mistake, 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 she made them. And she spent a few months saying, I don't need to be the perfect skater. I need to be the best skater in the moment. Yeah. And, and do you have to separate her. yourself from other from expectations? Like if you get too involved, you know, or connected with other people's expectations. I think you kind of said this in the beginning. Rather than focusing on what you can do, your own skills, mm-hmm. uh, it's all about your game and not what people think of you and it. If you get because it sounds like that, what she was getting into that, you know, all the press, and then that that terrifies you. Well, you know, you got to use other competitors as reference points for what you do. And I think that's fine. It's not about tearing them down. I mean, I have this crummy, broken elliptical that I bought at a thrift store. And when I'm not using it for drying laundry, which is usually, um, I'll occasionally hop on and I'll be on the elliptical and I'll be like, I have such a workout. I'm so proud of me. (laughs) Well, it's not until I go to a gym that I'm going to really realize what a workout is, right? So <laughs> Reality I go to the gym, sets in. <laughs> and I don't go to the gym because I don't want to know, right? So I understand that those other people give me examples of things to do and to, know, and to not do. For, for Gracie and what I think we were talking about at the beginning was the distraction of the audience. So not the other people who were skating, but the people who were watching in the stands, whether they were judges or media or you know, whoever, but those people who aren't actually giving her reference points but setting up expectations that she didn't know if she could meet them or not. Ashley, I want to ask you, because this, I want to see how this fits into it. This was another thing um, someone had said about your book. Oh, Phil Gordon, World Poker Tour Champion. And he mm-hmm. said, I was a good poker player before I read it, and now I'm even better. So how, I, tell me how that fits in, because poker playing, there's obviously a lot of element of luck, or maybe there isn't, but... Well, um, Phil actually says that if you, only beginners are using luck, and that mastering poker is about perceiving, you know, on a mathematical fashion, what are the odds of success of your hand compared to what everybody else has based on the other cards that are visible with Texas Hold'em, and that you can actually, within a few months, master those calculations, and then, you know, how our book, in some ways, I think, helped him is understanding those other things that are going on, like anger. You know, Phil says, don't go play poker when you're angry. Well, now, why is that? Well, everybody thinks, oh, anger is a bad thing. But actually, research, and, okay, it's not a surprise, 75% of um, elite karate players say that anger helps them in karate. But anger also has been found to help figure skaters long-distance runners, (laughs) and they're like, what? And it's because anger is a sort of special emotion. We talked earlier about how, you know, excitement is about moving forward and fear is about moving back. And people thought, well, negative emotion is about moving back. But anger is about moving forward, right, confronting someone. And it's because anger at its core is perceiving an injustice or an obstacle, but you think you can fix it. If you don't think you can fix it, that doesn't lead to anger. That leads to despair, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? But anger is that possibility of changing something. So what you need to do when you're angry is ask yourself, 
what's the obstacle? How can I fix this? And usually if you can fix the obstacle, the anger goes, does, goes away. So, you know, when Phil's saying don't play poker when you're angry, you've got to, before you sit down at the table, figure out what's making me upset, what's the obstacle, and I need to deal with that before I get this. In other kinds of competitions, you might want to say, well, I'm going to use the anger to figure out the obstacle on the way, but then it's you know, not, you know, not perhaps as cerebral as poker. So, yeah, and so in that case, anger can be motivating. I think, okay, exactly now I'm going to ask you about, I mean, you're, you're, your last book, New York Times bestselling author, obviously, we hope that this one also will be a New York Times uh, bestseller. So what motivates you? You're a champion <laughs> as far as a, a journalist. I mean, there are millions of people writing, and they don't get to where you have gotten and are mm-hmm. going. So how does that fit into what you do? Um, in terms of am I competitive against other yeah. authors and that kind of thing? Yeah, sure, always. I, you know, I, I read a book or I go to a movie and I'm like, wow, that was really great. I've got to step up my game. Or, wow, that was terrible. I can do more than that. And I absolutely want to use those responses to what other people are doing to challenge me to work harder and not to take things for granted. And I also think, you know, it's it's a lot of work, you know. It you know it's not just you know you don't just sit in your apartment and write a book and then magically it becomes a bestseller. Yeah. Uh, oh, and I wondered yeah. what is your formula? For, I mean, different authors obviously they have different ways of uh, accomplishing what they do. But I just just you personally how you because you are a champion. I mean, you are a champion <laughs> journalist, and so I want do you actually sit down or you have a, a formula similar to the ones that you've described in the book for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I really feel like I work to the, into the ground. And, you know, one of you know, my best ways of spending the day is to have two or 3,000 pages of journal printed out articles. And I just sit on my couch and read them, every one of them. And I, then I go and write synopsises of every one of them. And I think for a month, what is that teaching me? What's going on there? And it's, you know, just a constant amount of work. And the more work in terms of that sort of underlying preparation that I do, the better I feel my writing is because I'm more sure of what I'm saying. I feel that I know things. It's not like I've just scratched the surface when I'm not happy is when I had to, you know, when someone asked me, well, there was this one press release on this study and no one's read it yet, but what do you think? I want to know everything. So to me, you know, the, what I think I probably have in, in common with the Olympians is that real focus on skill mastery and preparation and, you know, working as hard as you possibly can before things really get going. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you today it's been uh, and um, so I do want to promote the book because as you said it's top dog but it's the science of winning and losing is the full title Mm -hmm. you can buy it online bookstores everywhere Um, and are you promoting the book anywhere in person that maybe in listeners may or may, may be able to go to? Um, yes, I actually, we have a tour schedule at our website, topdogbook.com and also ashleymerriman.com. I'm going to be in Boston next week in a panel discussion about grit and understanding perseverance, and I have events 
in L.A. and Chicago and other places around the country coming up in the next few weeks. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, go to your web. Everyone, go to Ashley's website, Ashley Merriman, Top Dog, New York Times bestselling author, and it's Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Great talking to you today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We're going to take a short break right now, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Melinda Blau is my next guest. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her new book is Family Whispering, Family Whispering. Um, and really, I guess, the, not guess, the theme of the book is how do we make our families better? And if you want to know that, you can find all the answers in Family Whispering. Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Melinda. Thank you very much. I I appreciate you having me. It's great to have you. And I also want to mention that you blog for Psychology Today. And I think this is important because you are a mother and a grandmother. So you uh, and co-founder of Mother You. But I I think being a mother and a grandmother makes you a real expert in the field of families. Well, it certainly (laughs) gives me a lot of opportunity to observe you know, in the natural habitat, so to speak, although I've also interviewed hundreds of families as well. How do we, okay, so how do we make families better? And I guess the second part of that is what's wrong with our families? I mean, uh, I, let, let me do the what's wrong. And, and okay. I, I hate using the word what's wrong okay. because I don't want to, you know, parents are struggling today. They're very anxious. They feel very guilty often. Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? There's so much out there. And, 
So I don't want to say what's wrong with our families, but I would like to say we could make our families better if we take, now this sounds counterintuitive, but it, you're a social worker and I, and this book is, is based on, on really on systems therapy, family th- theory. And if we take the focus off the kids and instead focus on the whole family, that's the thrust of this book. And it's a subtle and it's a actually simple change once you get it. But it really makes a profound difference because right now we are over-focused on children in many households. I, I don't say everyone is. Um, and I, again, don't fault the parents because they're all swimming in the same cultural ocean. And right now the zeitgeist is, you know, you must, you are responsible for everything that happens to your child. And, and people are often very overprotective. Um, and, and when I ask parents, well, why are you doing this? When I, if it's an activity that I think maybe the child could do themselves or if they're making a decision for the child, their answer invariably involves some variation of, well, this is a tough world and I have to prepare my child. And the irony is that they're doing just the opposite by doing everything for the child. Yeah. It's a tough world and you're not preparing your, your child because they're not going That's to right. be able to, uh, to act on their own to be able to, which is right. what you're talking about. Um, parents, parents treat their parents. like hot, hothouse flowers and kids need to make mistakes. They need to experiment. They need to fail and be able to dust themselves off and get up again because that's what life is. But Melinda, doesn't it seem that it's getting worse, not better? And this kind of, I mean, your interview kind of dovetails with uh, Ashley's because, you know, like giving, um, you know, when in competition and in sports, everybody gets a prize, you know. Right, I mean, right, that, right. Okay, yeah, that, I, I missed most of Ashley's thing, but I, I okay. know her other work and, and I know the, the research she's talking about. And, you know, all the research is showing that, that this kind of intensive parenting is wrong because we're taking away from children the very experiences that allow them to succeed. And, you know, I, I think the title of her book is uh, The Science of Winning and Losing. You know, there's a little too much emphasis in families today on winning. Um, you know, uh, it's okay to be average. It's okay to be who you are. And you may not be a winner in everything your parents want you to be. And I think that, you know, one of the wonderful gifts of the early Baby Whisperer books, which were very, very popular, was that, you know, we said, accept the child you have, not the child you wish you had. And that's, it sounds almost trite, but it's so profound because you've got to listen to your child. You've got to pay attention to what they can do and what they know. And I have a whole section in the book uh, called What Your Child Can Do, and I know it's going to shock most parents. Because okay, they how just... is it going to shock us? Tell us. Well, for example, um, an, a nine-year-old uh, comes to mom with a button off his pants, and the mother says, oh, okay, honey, I'll just put it over here. I'll do it later. Why doesn't she get a needle and thread and show him, if she's never shown him before, how to do it? A nine-year-old can sew his own button on. And do you know once he does it, he is going to be so proud of himself. And it may not look like mom sewed it on, but it will be on the pants. The pants will be usable. And he may even go to school and say, I sewed this button on myself. And why, we don't, well, why doesn't mom do that? Mom doesn't do it for a number of reasons. One, she doesn't think that he can. Two, she's very busy and it's faster to say, I'll do it myself. 
And and three, in, in there's a million other decisions that are flown flung at her every moment of the day, and so it's very hard just to slow down. And that's one of the great prescriptions, not only of this book but all the also the past Baby Whisperer books, to slow down a minute. You know, we all think the world's going to explode if we take that extra minute, and if you really think about it, you can. <laughs> You really can. It doesn't take that long to show a child. And, and you know your child. I'm not saying all nine-year-olds can. Um, some five-year-olds can throw, throw on a button. Um, you know, so you have to know the child and know what he or she can do. But the See, only way that's to find so that important. out is by giving... You know, I, I don't even... I, I just want you to emphasize that again. You really do have to take that extra minute, or maybe Absolutely. two, to know the child. And, when you come, and, you know, if you have a child, if you have a family of three children, you have to know each child, and they are different. And maybe one, I think another point, though, um, Melinda, is that one child may be able to sew the button on by themselves. Mm -hmm. Another one may need you to be there while they're sewing it on. I mean, there are nuances to that also. That's right. But you've created the situation if the child needs you to be there. Um, Because you haven't, you might be hovering. While you, and one of the things I talk about in the book is, is not giving kids chores, but giving them responsibilities. But part of giving a child a responsibility is to walk away and let that child do it the way they're going to do it. They're not going to do it the way you do it, but it's different. Neither does your spouse, by the way. Women do the same thing with their husbands. Why don't you do the vacuuming for a change? And then he picks up the vacuum cleaner and she goes, don't start over there. You're going to vacuum yourself into a corner. So what if he vacuums into a corner? <laughs> so what if it's not perfect? You know, you go do your nails or read a book yeah. <laughs> and be happy that someone else is doing it. Um, I talk in, in the book about, you know, treating the family as a co-op. And in that respect, everyone has responsibility for making the co-op thrive and run properly. You know, we sit down with children and we tell them how, how baseball is played. Why don't we teach them how households are run? Why don't we sit down with our families and say, all right, what does it take to get dinner on the table every night or breakfast? How do we get out of the house in the morning? And then as we talk about those things, we say, okay, we need a cook. We need a lunch maker. We need a table setter. We need a waker-upper for people who don't get out of bed. And then let's divvy up those jobs so we're all doing it together. And, and there's a, a secondary gain there for mom if she's doing 80% of these chores because then many she, you say that it's a co-op, you have a team. That's and right. And that allows, and I say mother because usually that's still in 2014, it's still the case. That's absolutely right. Yeah, is, and, and is angry because she's doing all of those things and complaining. Right. Or, or she herself and she gets sick because, because it really, you know, I use the word fair in the book a lot. It's just not fair. And, and uh, I have questions, um, you know, questionnaires. I have one set of questionnaires of why I do most of it and why I think I do enough. And we know who's going to take which test. And I said, just take whichever test speaks to you. And if the father takes the test, why I think I do enough, he's going to see why he thinks that. And then he's got to really say to himself, you know, I get myself up to go running when I don't feel like running. I get myself to the office when I don't feel like going to work. I've got to get myself to this family, even though I'd rather sit and read the newspaper. It's another responsibility. And, um, and it's also very important as role models for your kids. 
to... How about, to, I mean, you know, in terms of, because we're talking about gender, I, I'm thinking, what about, can we learn something? If, well, like, say if you have two moms or two dads, mm-hmm. does one mom... I mean, I'm trying to think of some of my well, friends. Well, I actually just wrote an article about that. Yeah. Um, Let's for, talk it's about that. On, on Huffington Post. Well, it's a, that's an interesting, it was really fun writing this article because I started out like most journalists. Here, here's the, it was, they asked me to write how it's different in families headed by two, two of the same gender. And so I started out doing the usual thing. Well, here's the way it's different and here's the way it's, it's the same. And then I realized in my book, I talk about, Every family is different. The fact of who heads it is only a small piece. Uh, it's a big piece, but it's, it's only part of what makes a family what it is. So in those families, one of the advantages they have is that they're not bound by gender roles. And yet you also you still see people um, uh, dividing out according to sometimes to traditional roles and sometimes according to what their preferences are and what their capabilities are. They have more, more latitude to choose than, say, uh, a male-female couple does. So your own personality kind of takes your strength. Well, exactly, more, and more I more. actually do a whole section in the book on gender mm-hmm. because it's, it's one of my pet peeves. And it's, it, one reason we're still talking about chore wars today is that these gender differences still exist, and we're perpetuating not in the in the workplace, perhaps, but in our homes, which is where it's primary. This is where kids learn to do gender, <laughs> because it is a socially constructed. Uh, for the most part, there are differences between men and women, but certainly both are capable of doing household, cho- um, you know, responsibilities and raising children and all of those things. Men and women are equally competent. They may do it differently. And as far as I'm concerned, vive la différence. <laughs> exactly. And also, besides gender, I mean, and, and you talk about this too, I mean, there are cultural differences. Yes. Um, obviously, and, you know, we're a multicultural society, so... Um, yeah, and, and, and also, I mean, there's, it, it, I often talk to grandparents, and a lot of them bemoan the fact of, oh, quote, and I imagine this has been since every decade we've had parents and grandparents, oh, my God, why do they do it that way? They didn't do, we didn't do this. And the, the, the historical moment also influences a family. So families who brought up kids in the uh, 1980s are very different than families bringing up kids in the 19, in the 2014s. Yeah. And what are the differences? I mean, I was one of those parents who brought up three boys in the 1980s. Well, it, the child centeredness was not as exquisite as it is now. We we saw the beginnings of the what they call now in retrospect the failed self-esteem movement where you know it was very important to talk to your child and reason with your child. So we saw the beginning of what's happening now in terms of this overprotectiveness, but it was nowhere near what it is today. And and I think there are a lot of factors that that got us here. And honestly, it's less important why we're here, but just the acknowledgement that, that we are here. And I'm hoping that this book is going to give parents an alternative. Because one of the things I often say is, you know, they talk about tiger moms and they talk about, you know, helicopter dads. And as different as they seem, you know, the tiger mom is strict. and you know, They still both concentrate only on the children. Neither of them are really looking at the family. And as a result, the, ki- the children think they're the center of the universe. The adults 
may or may not be arguing about it, <laughs> and the the family itself languishes. And we're perpetuating this narcissism. That's I, right. Which, That's right. It, as you say, it starts. It all has to do with child rearing. Right. Yeah, and it did. I guess it. it I mean, I look at some of these parents. I mean, you're a grandmother, and look at them in terms of how, just in their own homes, of protecting the kids from bumping into a table by right. putting plastic things on the corners. Or, right, right, uh, right. You know, you can't ride your bike in the driveway without three helmets on your head. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, you know, one of the factors, and I talk about this in the book, and, and I it really, uh, it's something that we don't see and we don't think about. One of the factors is that in the last... 20 years especially, the, the child-centered products and services industry has blossomed, and they make the most of parents' fields, uh, fears, so that, you know, parents are so afraid of everything, and a lot of this is, you know, driven by advertising. Don't let your child, you know, stop, uh, stop them from falling on their heads, but, you know, let's wrap them in plastic, why don't we? Yes. <laughs> you know, somehow our kids survived, didn't they? Yeah, they and, you survived. Know, we survived, kid, and they I, I survived. I see parents yeah. in really good neighborhoods. They don't let their kids ride around the block on their bicycles. And this is not a neighborhood where you know you necessarily worry. And and one of the reasons they do it is it's also other parents. They say, oh, "My God, you get let little Johnny on his bike alone." A neighbor might say that, and then the mother is frightened to do it again, even though she says. You know, it's time for him to learn to go around the block. The thrill for the first time of, I mean, we all remember it, of getting on a bike and riding away from home. You know where home is. You don't let a child do it if they don't know where home is. But that's what, that's why I say you start all along and you talk to them and you watch them and you, you correct gently by saying to the child, you know, it would be better, or you do it the first time with them. This is the best way to ride around the block. I'll let you do it. You may find other routes later on, but let's, for now, let's just stick to this route. And most children will do it because they're a little scared. But it's so, thrilling. Yeah, independence is baby steps. and um, It is baby your, steps. Yeah, and to it me, is baby that's, steps. that's the uh, goal I mean, of parenthood. This book is so important. I mean, I, I, what's been the response... I, the well, book. I will tell you, it, it just came out yesterday, so yeah, I can't well, we've answer had 24 it. hours. <laughs> but I can tell you two things. Any parents who have read it, who have been my demographic, which I really, I hope grandparents will buy the book too. They'll probably yes. want to give it to their daughters and sons. But the main demographic is people between kids between two and whatever, um, because it's a book that'll last them a decade. It's it's really about managing the family. So it's not it's not a traditional parenting book. But people that I've given it to have said that they sit there with a marker and they underline things and then they, they send little pieces of it to their husbands, you know, listen to this, listen. To this. And some people have said to me, oh, my God, it sounded like you were talking about my family in the, the chapter on chore wars. Um, the example I just gave about the husband who says, who goes out running and he'll never miss a run and no matter what, she said, mm-hmm. it was as if you were talking to me. <laughs> That's my husband. So yeah. I, I, I hope that parents will resonate with the message and also realize that most, not, not most, the book is very, very accessible. It's very easy to read, and I think it's fun to read. And the, the strategies, the first part of the book is about awareness and opening your eyes, and the second is about strategies that will help you improve your relationships have better self-control around the kids, which will give them better self-control. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, before you go on, I, I think when you when you're talking that particular topic, if the family, it gives the opportunities for couples to be more intimate. That's if, right. You know, and and you know, we have a very high divorce rate, obviously. Right. So. Um, it works well for the couple as well as for the whole family as oh, well as absolutely. for the kids. Absolutely. Yeah. I have actually, there's a, one chapter I'm kind of proud of because I've never seen it in another book. It's partly devoted to couples and couples' relationship. And then the last half of the chapter is to what, devoted to what I call the other significant others. And that's parent, your parents, your in-laws, because they're really, they're part of the family too. And they influence your parenting. And, you know, even if your mother is not there, she's in your head. <laughs> When you're parenting, I, or your father, I shouldn't just say your mother. And um, I, I feel it's very important. Um, the relationship chapter applies to both children and adults because there's certain basics about relationships that are so important that you have to always keep in mind, no matter what, who you're talking to. And what I say is, before you say or do anything, ask yourself: Is this good for the relationship? And that goes for talking to your child or talking to your partner. And again, if you slow down, you can do that. It's really, it's really getting this stuff into your head. And, I, and my dream for this book is that parents will get it into, your, into their heads and they will, um, they'll, they'll want to join with other parents. I have a suggestion in the book to have and on my website to start family whispering groups, which I think of as part book club, park Bible study, and part support group. Because so how are, would you do that? Let's say you, let's... Well, I have guidelines on my website, which is familywhispering.com, but um, basically you get together with a bunch of other, either a bunch of strange families, you could put a, a little notice in the local paper, or get together with couples you know, because one of the things I, I've found in interviewing families is that they're, they're very unaware that what goes on in their house goes on everywhere. That everybody's having the same kind of battles over homework and screen time and how to get out of the house in the morning and how to carve out, you know, couples all talk about, well, we try to have a date night. Date nights don't do it. <laughs> you need to have a family focus and put that into the need for couples time is part of the family focus. And, I, and I've spoken to couples who do it well, and what they do is sometimes they'll go out for a run together to find that time, or they'll, they'll decide to get a babysitter and go food shopping together. Um, so it can know, be very it, simple. It doesn't have to be something elaborate like exactly. taking a trip or going away for the weekend or going to an expensive exactly, restaurant. It's exactly. sharing something that you both That's right. uh, love That's to do or want to do. But I'm fascinated with this fa- familywhispering.com, familywhispering.com and starting those groups because I'm a big, as a social worker, pr- proponent of group therapy, which isn't quite as popular as it used to be. Right. But um, that's very, that, that's that's. Innovative, that's very cool, and I think it really has a potential for working because you're right, families do have similar problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think oftentimes uh, parents or even the kids don't want to admit that they do have these issues. You know, our house isn't running so smoothly. You know, we we, we do have issues, and if you can really share that with other families in the Mm -hmm. way that you are proposing, I think that that could really work. I think so, and I think also one of the problems is that parents don't think they have an alternative. What they'll do is they'll go out to the store and they'll pick up another parenting book 
and another parenting book's not going to tell them because it's still about the child. And it's, as you well know, as a social worker, it's never just between parent and child. It's a family issue. And so I'm hoping that this book is going to give parents a new way of seeing. And it's a really subtle shift. I call it family think as opposed to parent think. But it will open their eyes to a whole myriad of, of you know, dynamics in the family, and they'll pay attention in a different way, um, even when siblings argue. You know, the, and, and this is, again, I, I have to credit the late Tracy Hogg because one of the things she taught me about babies was you always ask when a baby's crying, you stop for a second, and there was that pause again, and when the baby's crying, you say, what happened before? Just ask yourself in one second, look at what's happening. We have an acronym in that book called SLOW. Stop, look, observe, what's up, what's happening. And the same thing is so true of family life. Just a need to just put a little pause in there and, and start seeing things through this family lens. And it, it's, it's an amazing thing, and I've heard this from all the early readers, that they can't get it out of their head, which course makes me very happy (laughs) you're whispering to them uh which is good well you know the thing is everybody can be it's a practice family whispering and i purposely didn't call myself the family whisperer i don't want to be that i want to be the teacher of family whispering and everyone can learn it and it's something like yoga you get better at it the more you do and another thing, Melinda, I mean, it's always a family thing. I mean, even if you don't right. define it as that and you're focusing on one child and sometimes in a family where there are problems, the one child becomes the identified patient. Exactly. But you're all part of that family. And, you, you know, what you're doing is interconnected. It's connected to what everybody else is doing. And um, so I, I think this... That's why your book is really important. You're really describing it. It's not whether or not it exists or not. It does. It, it's a family thing. Exactly. I'm naming yeah. it, and and we can't we can't do anything about something until we name it. And I think this book will really open parents' eyes. I have one chapter on on change, for example. Now, change is a given in in life in general, but certainly in families. And whether the change happens to one of the individuals or it happens to the whole family, it doesn't matter. Everyone is affected. And so I have a whole chapter on how you deal with change as a family. And I think that's, that's important. So everything I see, and it's interesting for me because, you know, I've been doing this for years. I've been writing about relationships, and I've been interviewed about various books on other types of relationships. And anytime I'm asked a parenting question, in the past I would have answered from a family, a parent perspective also. I now answer the questions from a family perspective, and it's, it's again, very subtle, but it's profoundly different. Very different. Uh, we have to say goodbye. This was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed, all, obviously, all the information, the interview, uh, the book, Family Whispering, Melinda Blau, New York Times best-selling author. She's written many, many books. Um, you can go to that website, familywhispering.com, and uh, any other website that we should know about in terms of what you're doing or other uh, Well, I'm, I, I just uh, have some pieces on the Huffington Post. And Huffington Post. Um, there's another wonderful website that I love called shareable.net, and it's just a wonderful way of looking at how you share everything from life in a family to uh, you know the economy, and it's a great website. Um, Terrific. Well, and then I the think book that's is available all we can do for now, but... Um, 
Belinda Blau, thanks so much for being on the show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.